Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org. And please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. Chronological Gospels, Lesson 68, but we're going to be in John chapter 10, and we'll be there for our main text, finishing out John 10 from verse 22 through 41. And maybe I should have dropped this in a a few weeks ago. We were kind of in that groove in Luke's Gospel, and perhaps this should have come into that place. John dates the timeline prior to Jesus going to Jerusalem for that final time. And uh, he was there one time before in John 10:22 at the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And so by the time we get through John chapter 10, we'll have Jesus getting away from the conflict of Jerusalem to the area where John the Baptist was baptizing at the first, Scripture tells us, and there he would stay. And they would even know where to come and find Jesus when in chapter 11, Lazarus is sick and finally dies, that this is where Jesus kind of hung out prior to that final week. And we are getting into those latter stages of Jesus's ministry. But here we find that there are people questioning Jesus. They're asking him, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? Just be open with us. Tell us. And uh, at this point, Jesus had not directly said he was the Messiah, but he has shown it in many ways and alluded to it in a number of ways as well. I think he went beyond, are you the Christ? He said, I am the Son of God. We'll see that in our text today. He also said, I am the great I am. He did that seven times that John records for us. And John also records seven miracles that Jesus refers to the works that I do prove that I am the Christ, the very works that I do. And yet the people were still questioning. They were unsure. And sometimes in this life we are questioning and we are unsure and we need to hear from the Lord. And we may be praying to him, Lord, just tell me plainly. And the Lord, we don't hear a direct answer and sometimes we wait for an answer. Sometimes the answer comes through others And we see the work that God is doing in his church today. Sometimes the answer comes through his word or a combination of God's word and God's people and uh, all the ways that the Lord can speak to us and the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit. So it's good to have that desire to hear from the Lord. And here we find that it is winter as we come to verse 22. It's the Feast of Dedication, and you think winter, we look outside and we see snow on the ground, and it's winter, not technically yet, but it's getting to feel a lot like Christmas, as the song goes. But winter in 
Israel, we just, you know, they have palm trees, so their winter looks a little different than what our winter might look like. But still, it is the winter months, and they're at the Feast of Dedication. And so we're going to find in this teaching today, Are You the Christ? The question that they asked Jesus from John 10, verses 22 through 42. We're going to see in our first point, the Christ, verses 22 through 24. My works, verses 25 through 30. My Father's works, verses 31 through 38. And the calm before the storm, 39 through 42. I'm going to go ahead and read our first point, and we'll get into the teaching of God's Word, verses 22 through 24 of John 10. And the question, are you the Christ? And the Word of God tells us, now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So the Feast of Dedication, the Festival of Lights, or Hanukkah as it's known today, a holiday that uh, grew from the period in between the Old and the New Testaments when Anicus Epiphanes uh, desecrated or desolated the temple did not allow worship to take place in the temple at that time and even uh, offered some of the priests, the Levites, as sacrifices, some say a pig on the altar. But it was a very dark period in Israel during this time. And this is before the Romans conquered Greece. And so we're coming toward the end of the Grecian Empire at this time where they had rule and authority over the area of Jerusalem. And it was dark in two ways. One, it was just a horrible period for the people. But the menorah in the temple was no longer, he closed the temple. They were no longer able to uh, put the showbread out every week in the temple, replace the loaves that was there. They were no longer able to tend the lamps, the lights in the temple. So the temple, in the sense of this earthly view, went dark by the menorah going dark. And when the Maccabees and their revolts finally regained, and uh, we read about the Maccabees, it is pretty impressive what they did in kind of a guerrilla warfare against Greece, able to retake much of the empire that David ruled over. They had control, but it was also a dark period because uh, it was through force, and sometimes their force was also directed to their own people. But they were at one point able to regain control of the temple, and when they went in, they only had enough oil for one day's burning, and they only could use the oil that was in accordance to the law. It had to be specially made, and it took a week to make this oil. And they went ahead and lit the menorah anyways, and the menorah remained lit until they were able to resupply that oil. And so Josephus tells us about this, but he says he 
says nothing about this custom. In fact, he has this freedom to worship had been concealed in darkness, now brought to light. So he kind of helped bring about this term, Hanukkah, but the festival of lights. We know it today as that as well. And the lighting of the candles that came from Josephus in his writings, uh, being able to bring freedom to worship that was concealed in darkness to bring it to light. And this year, Hanukkah begins always on the 25th of Kislev, which is on the Jewish calendar. But for us, December 7th through December 15th, uh, they'll be celebrating Hanukkah this year. And so he begins with that. So we have a time stamp. That's just totally cool when you're going through the Gospels, when you can say, oh, we know the time period that this took place. Also, they have a location. It's Solomon's Porch. It's a location that um, isn't necessarily known today. Maybe they have discovered this area, but the Romans no doubt had destroyed it since the time of John writing this. But it was a portion of the temple that had been thought, again, by Josephus to have remained from the time of Solomon that the Babylonians did not destroy because of its beauty and perhaps its strength that they had. It was a wall that was supported by a valley wall that supported by 600 feet of wall and some uh, immense stones up to 30 feet long and We've seen some of the, uh, the Wailing Wall, Lily and I and others who have been to Israel there at the Wailing Wall. The size of these stones are just incredible. And even to this day, they kind of look at it and think, how in the world did they do this to have a stone? I think the lar- longest one is 45 feet long, which is the width of our building from outside dimensions, I believe. And then to have it six feet in height and eight feet thick, how do they move a stone that size and move it from a quarry that's a couple of miles away in that and put it together? And some of this is still standing. Well, this was an area that is mentioned three times in Scripture. This is its first mention. It's always in the New Testament. We find a second mention in Acts chapter 3, verse 11. And it says, now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon, greatly amazed. And then we learn again in Acts 5.12, and through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were in one accord in Solomon's porch. This was became a gathering place. Jesus here uh, noted to be here as he walked in the temple in Solomon's porch, and then a great miracle took place after Jesus ascended into heaven through Peter and John, the healing of a lame man. And then we learned that the church met there in one accord. They met there together as the body of Christ. There is a movement and I don't see anything necessarily wrong with it, except for sometimes they say it's the only way to do church is the home church movement, where they say if you look in the Bible that you don't see the church gathering in a big location. 
It's like, yes, you do. In the book of Acts, you find them gathering at the temple. And this passage from Acts 5.12 specifically tells us so. The location where they gathered and that they were meeting there and that great signs and wonders were being done among the people at that place. So we do see both the house church and the big gathering places. And you find it with Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas, as they do their missionary journeys. They were always looking for a place to gather where people would, could come to worship or to go to where the Jews were worshiping at the synagogue or where Gentiles worshiped God by the riverside. They were always looking for those larger gathering places. And I only mention that because I think it's important for churches to be visible and to be landmarks. So just this week, a couple stopped by the church that used to attend here some 20 plus years ago with their oldest son. When they attended here, he did not exist and he's going to college now. So it's been a while and uh, took a little walk through memory lane, going through the building, showing their son where they attended church here. And they were able to do that because we're still here as a church. Sometimes you might pull up and it's like, oh man, it's a library now. It's a antique mall. I mean, you find other uses. And the worst example I've ever seen was a church in a town in Northern California where the people wanted to keep the building. Now, if they build a new building and the old building becomes obsolete because they outgrew it, so be it. But one of the worst examples I've ever seen of the living church of God was that they were so wanting to keep this church building as a landmark that they relocated it right in the middle of a graveyard. And if that's not a dead church, I don't know any greater example of a dead church in my life when you plant it in a graveyard and nobody was attending there at that time. It just became a landmark for them. So they're in Solomon's porch. It's a place that has been destroyed, I believe, by the Romans. So we don't have the exact location of this. But the early church knew it and they met there, possibly because Jesus met there. And they gathered around him. They surrounded him. How long, verse 24, will you keep us in doubt? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. So they're saying, are you the anointed one? It's the Greek word Christos, a Mashiach, a Messiah in the Hebrew. And they're asking the same question that they asked of John the Baptist. In John 1, 19 and 20, priests and Levites came from Jerusalem and asked him, who are you? And he confessed, but did not deny, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So they were wondering this same thing about John. And even Andrew, one of John's disciples, after hearing John the Baptist testify of Jesus in John 1.35, Behold the Lamb of God, it tells us in John 1.41 that after Andrew and another disciple spent the day with Jesus that Andrew first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. We have found the Messiah. We have found Christ. 
So it wasn't three years earlier, it wasn't even difficult for John, who became one of Jesus' 12 disciples, apostles, in one day of spending time with Jesus, knowing that this is the Christ. They've had now three years interacting with Jesus, and they're like, tell us plainly. We see you doing all these miracles. We hear you teaching, but just tell us plainly. They were out to trap him. And so I believe perhaps one of the reasons Jesus didn't say plainly at this point, especially to this crowd, because they had ulterior motives at hand. So we find the woman at the well. She also said of Jesus in John 4, 25 and 26, and now just a I don't know, maybe an hour with Jesus. I don't even know how long she spent with Jesus. She came out to the well at noontime when nobody else was around. And she said to him by the end of that conversation with Jesus, I know that the Messiah is coming. It is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And he said to her, I who speak to you am he. And then she would go to town and, and tell that we have found the one. Is this not the Christ? And the whole town came and many believed in him. It didn't take her long to learn that Jesus was the Messiah. At the feeding of 5,000, the 12, if you remember, they gathered together. But afterwards, when the crowds came the next morning because they were only anticipating more food, Thanksgiving was great, but we're hungry for breakfast now. Give us some more food. And many depart, departed from him at that time. And Jesus asked the twelve if they were also going to depart. In John 6, 68 and 69, Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The twelve became, came to believe and know. So it was just faith and knowledge combined there. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. So many rejected Jesus, but the eleven of the twelve came to believe and know that Jesus Christ was the Christ, the Son of the living God. In John 7, people de debated over whether Jesus was the Christ from the religious rulers to the common people. They debated about this. And though some proclaimed him as the Christ, we find that by John 9:22, the religious rulers had put out this proclamation to the people saying, if anyone confessed that Jesus was the Christ, they would be put out of the synagogue. And even John the Baptist, when he was in prison, he's the one who said, behold the Lamb of God, it takes away the sin of the world. But when he was hanging out in prison, and he wasn't hanging out there because it was a, a prison ministry that he could come and go as he would please, but it was a different kind of prison ministry, one where he was in prison and uh, he couldn't go from there. He sent two of his disciples in Matthew 11, 4 through 6. 
to ask Jesus, are you the coming one or should we seek another? So even John questioned, are you the Christ? I thought I had it right, but maybe maybe I got it wrong. And this was Jesus' response in John 11, 4 through 6. Go tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. So his works gave evidence, and many saw the works, heard the words. And they believe that he was truly the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's what we need today. Not only belief, but knowledge coming together. Have you come to believe and know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? It's my prayer that we have. So Jesus points them to his works in verses 25 through 30. Again, I'll read the context for us. And Jesus answered them, I told you, And you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. They bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And I gave them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So Jesus, he responds by saying, I told you. And you don't believe. And then he goes on to speak about his works, bearing witness. And he did the works in the Father's name. And then He gave the reason why they didn't believe, because they were not of his sheep. They did not know him. So they were asking, but they didn't ask in faith or true knowledge. Again, for many of the religious rulers, they were wanting to trap him. So they were saying, tell us plainly. And Jesus said, I've already told you. But besides this, look at my works. Now we come to chapter 10. Jesus had referred to his father 11 times. He had made four of his seven I am statements that are found in John's gospel. And he applied the name of God to himself in John 8:58, He said, most assuredly, I say to you that before Abraham was, I am. He took the very name of God. It's like I told you. And yet you did not believe. So he told them with words. He also had works. The miracles that he did in the name of the Father bore witness that he was truly the Christ. In John 5, 36, it says, I have a greater witness than John's for the work which the Father has given me to finish. That very work that I do bears witness of me that the Father has sent me. And yet they did not believe because they were not part of the flock. And so he's he's dropping back to teaching again earlier on in John chapter 10. We do have the divide of John 21 and John 22. 
where there is a period of time. So it's for us, it's all John chapter 10, but there was a time period that passed between verses 21 and 22, but he goes back to what he had talked about earlier, talking about his sheep, that my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. So three things that the Lord speaks about concerning the sheep. First of all, the sheep hear my voice. Secondly, he knows his sheep. And third, his sheep follow him. And we find those three things kind of combined in two verses from John 10. First of all, in verse 4, it says, And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. And in John 10:14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my sheep. But these who are asking the question of Jesus, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? They were not part of the flock. They did not believe because they were not his sheep. But he said concerning his sheep, and I like this, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my Father's hand. I give them eternal life. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So he expands upon some of the meaning behind of what he said in John 10.10, 10, that he who comes to me may have life and have it more abundantly. Now that life, abundant life, also speaks about the gift of eternal life that the Lord gives us. Not only does he, he give us abundant life here and now upon this earth, having a relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, but eternal life is waiting. Now, eternal life was not a new topic for Jesus. We could tie it back to John chapter 1, where it speaks that he is the light and life of man, but Jesus talked about it, in John chapters 3, 4, 5, 10, 11, 12, and 17. This was not a new topic for Jesus. But he did first mention eternal life in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life John 3:36 he who believes in the son has everlasting life he who does not believe in the son shall not see life but the wrath of god abides on him there's a dividing point given to us in scripture of those who believe and those who do not believe jesus right now is dealing with those who do not believe in him therefore they had not come to the knowledge that he is the Christ, the Son of God. So this is a great eternal security passage where it speaks about my father being greater than me and no one's able to snatch him out of my father's hand and Jesus saying no one can snatch them out of my hand. Uh, this is the same Greek word, hapazo, that is used when talked about the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. 
In 1 Thessalonians 4.17, it's translated as caught up there. When you speak about the rapture, that the church is going to be caught up, harpazo. And it's a Greek word that speaks about being snatched away or taken away violently. No one by force can take them out of my Father's hand. And why is that? Well, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 7.25, He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to Him through, come to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Whoever comes to God through Jesus Christ, we find that Jesus Christ always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus' watchful care over His sheep should give us great comfort knowing that along with Jesus, his Father, also watching over the lives of those who have believed and know that he is the Son, the Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 John 3.20 tells us, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. So Christ, the good shepherd, gives his sheep everlasting life, which no one can take away. This is because in 1 John 4, 4 and 9, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. The purpose of Jesus coming, that we might not just be forgiven, of our sins, but that we might live, we might have life, abundant life, John 10.10, through Jesus Christ. So he speaks about my father's works. He's already spoken about his father, but he goes a little deeper into it, verses 31 through 38. I'm saying that slow. I want to make sure I got it right. Okay, 31 through 38. I put a divide different than my Bible. So sometimes the Bibles do great where they divide passages and give you subheadings in those passages. And sometimes I disagree and put them in a different spot. And uh, I just slid it in one verse over. 31 through 38, the context, it says, Then the Jews took up stones to stone them again. Took up stones again to stone him. So it's not the first time they attempted to do this. Many good works, Jesus answered. I've shown you from my father. For which of these works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him saying, For good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus answered, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. And if... He called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? And if I do not do the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe. Again, we come back to those two words that you might know and believe. Gnosko and pistos, the two Greek words. Uh, Gnosko is knowledge and pistos, faith, belief. 
that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. And so here they're ready to stone. And it says they took up stones again. So John's telling us this wasn't the first time they attempted to stone him. And he asked, what good works are you stoning me for? It's not for the works, it's for your words. It's for what you said. You made yourself to be the Son of God. He claimed in John 8:59, Ego and me, I am. He took the very name that God gave to Moses when Moses asked God, and they say to me, Exodus 3:14, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And the Jews understood this. God said to Moses, tell them that I am has sent you. And the Jews understood that Jesus was taking that very name that God used with Moses and applying it to himself. In John 19:7, the Jews would say, we have a law. And according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. So not only using the name of God, but making himself the son of God, which he was and is. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And yet Jesus points out to them in the Psalms, is what he's going back to, Psalm 82, verse 1 and also in verse 6, that even in the Old Testament for us, but in the Word of God, that they had, that God called them gods. It's a little g, but he called them gods. So Jesus answered and said, Is it not written in your law? This is referring to Psalm 82, verse 1. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. In 82, verse 6, You are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High of God. So Jesus not only connecting that the Bible calls them gods, but they claim that you're children of God. And Jesus said, as the Son of God, I'm a child of God. So what's wrong with that? So he's arguing, he's reasoning with them from Scripture. I think that's a good thing to do when you talk with others about faith and they have questions or things that they maybe wonder when we can come back and reason with Scripture. I was reminded of this uh, just a couple of weeks ago, but long time ago now before we lived out here in Lake Villa, but we, Lily and I, were attending church at Calvary Chapel Lake Villa at the time, and we were driving over from Winthrop Harbor where we made our home when we first came back from California. And uh, one fall, and it's always fall for me, it's like I, in, in many ways, I'm very regimented about how I get my work done. And then there's other things I just procrastinate on. It's like, look in my garage, and you'll know the moment the door opens. Look in the house, and in the garage, they look like two different people live in this place. The house is Lily's, the garage is mine. 
No, in the house. I, uh, there are things I want just as they should be in our house. But in the garage, usually it's like I'm done work and I've set my tools down and I'll get to it later. Later never comes. So it just piles up. I was even thinking about that. So it was in the fall. I was painting my house in the harbor. We um, probably a year away from moving out here at the time. Um, but I was painting and Jehovah's Witness came up, a couple of them, and talking to me. And I, I just said, you know, I'm really busy right now. And as they could see, I wasn't a joke. Um, I was busy, so I asked, could you come back at another time? Could we make an appointment? And uh, so we did. Have you ever made an appointment with a JW? They'll do it with you. Um, and uh, so they came back. Uh, the initial was the guy and his daughter, and she was a little girl. When he came back, he came back with another guy. So I remember one of the names was Paul. But uh, I spent two hours with them. And I set a parameter of, okay, let's reason together. Let's use the Word of God. And if we bring up a text and we're confused about it, let's look at the context. So just don't give me a verse and say, well, it says here, let's look at the whole passage around that verse and try to understand it. And as I said, we spent two hours. The conversation shut down when I got away from the Word of God because I had material, some of that material is back here on the bookshelf, of how to talk with Jehovah's Witness. And when I got other material outside of the Bible, they had to leave suddenly. And they left so suddenly, they left their books at my house. It was great. I didn't mind looking through their books. And uh, one of the books I'd never seen before, but it was pretty much answers that Christians might say something and how they should respond. They're studying how to respond to things that you might say. And uh, so I didn't mind. They came back. They got their books, but I had them for a couple of weeks, so I got what I wanted out of them. But the point being, he reasoned with the Word of God. And I found that when you use the Word of God in reasoning with others, it can have great impact. And sometimes when you try to reason outside of the Word of God, sometimes it may work, but a lot of times it may just fall apart and partly because the word of God has given us a guarantee, God's saying in Isaiah that my word shall not return void for which I've given it. It doesn't return void to him. So let's learn as Jesus in this example, using the word of God, using Psalm 82 verses 1 and 6 to ask a deal in this situation. They said he had blasphemed. It means to speak or slander speak against God. And he said, no, I didn't. Look in the Word of God. See what the Word of God says. The Scripture, he says, it cannot be broken. It's infallible. And we know in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, that knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. The prophecy never came by the will of man, but by holy men of God who spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus in John 5.18 saying, 
I tell you that heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot or tittle will by no means pass away from the law till it's fulfilled. That God's word is being fulfilled, will be fulfilled. Everything in God's word will be fulfilled. So the law called men gods and children of the Most High. So why should they stone Jesus for calling himself the Son of God? And then he gave the witness of the works again. If you don't believe my words, look at the works. Verses 37 and 38. The works that I do testify that he was the Son of God, that they might know and believe. In John's Gospel, he has seven miracles that he records for us. Uh, Jesus turning water into wine in John 2, 1 through 11. The healing of a nobleman's son in John 4, 46 through 54. The healing of a man who had an infirmity for 38 years in John 5, 1 through 15. The feeding of the 5,000, John 6, 5 through 14. Jesus walking on water, John 6, 16 through 21. The healing of a man born blind, John 1, or John 9, 1 through 12. And the raising of Lazarus, John 11, 1 through 45, the whole chapter deals with that. But John said in John 20, 30 and 31, truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples that are not in this book. He only gave us seven. But he said, these were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And seeing the works should give us a cause, give them a cause, to believe that the Father had sent him. And is it that Jesus' past and present works, they still testify that he is the Christ, the Son of God, that you might believe and know. So they sought to seize him once again. We close out 39 through 42. They sought to seize him again, and he escaped out of their hands, and he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at the first, and there he stayed. And many came to him and said, John performed, they said, John performed no sign. But all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. So those who questioned Jesus, basically verses 22 through 38, 39, they didn't believe because they didn't have a heart to seek Jesus. They didn't want to know. They saw the things that he was doing. They heard the words that he was testifying, but they had already come to a conclusion about Jesus. But those who sought for Jesus, they found him where he went, where John was baptizing at the first. This goes back three plus years earlier. And there they came to know and to believe that he was the Christ. He went away beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing. And many came to know that he was the Christ there. Many believed. And for a few months, Jesus, it seems, stepped away from the conflict in Jerusalem 
to minister to those who came to him. Many had heard the testimony of John the Baptist and may have even been baptized by him. But now, remembering the testimony of John, they said everything John said about this man. They were true, were here, but are for us. They're true. And it's only by believing and receiving that we are able to grow and go in our lives as well. And so today we've seen, are you the Christ? In verses 22 through 24, I ask the question, have you come to believe and know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? In verses 25 through 30, we learn that those who questioned Jesus, they didn't believe and know. But we did learn that the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, gives everlasting life to those who come to him, believe in him, that Jesus' work testify of him, verses 31 through 38. His, both his past and present works testify that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And here we find in the closing verses, the calm before the storm, calm before the storm when Jesus separated away from Jerusalem, the conflict that would be there, he evaded stoning once again because that was not going to be the means of his being put to death. But many came to him. They believed and they knew that he was the Christ, the Son of God. I pray that we have all come to that knowledge here today. And Father, we thank you for your word, for what it teaches us. And we thank you, Lord, for just the wonders of your word things um, that we can learn studying through a chapter like this, the conflict that Jesus had, but Jesus talking about his sheep, hearing his voice, the sheep knowing him, the sheep believing in him. We learned today twice in this passage talking about a belief and knowledge. Um, there were those who did believe and come to know Jesus as Savior, and those who did not believe, therefore they did not know him as their savior. And that is true to this day, Lord. Many of us here have come to believe, and we know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And yet there are so many, Lord, who they have not yet believed, and they do not have that knowledge that had been given to us by the Spirit of God. And they, therefore, do not have everlasting life. It's my prayer, Lord, that this ministry would be a place where life comes to those who seek you because you are the good shepherd who seeks and saves those who are lost. We thank you for that, Lord, this day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.